0: Well, thank you, praise team. Um, I am convinced that revival can happen in America. Uh, we know there's need for it. Uh, you look out at what's where people are at culturally, the values in our culture, the, um, everything that's going on. But I do believe that God can turn all this around. I do believe that revival can happen. But it will only happen if God's people, the people who are called by his name, will humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and repent of their wicked ways. Notice that God's speaking to the church there. He didn't say if the world out there will repent. He didn't say if the world out there will humble themselves. He said if my people, us, you, me, will humble ourselves, turn to him, pray, seek his face, repent. Then God says he will heal Our land. Every Sunday, for the first Sunday of the month, we have paused some point in our service. And so I want to take that opportunity to do that now to pray for revival. So, if you would, let's bow our heads together and pray for revival in our country. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we confess that we have had spiritual wax in our ears, we have heard sermon after sermon after sermon. We have sat through Bible teaching, and yet our lives are really no different than they were a month ago or a year ago,
1: and so on. Lord, we have
0: not allowed the truth in your word to take over our lives. And so this morning, we come to you repentant of
1: that. And ask you, Lord, to change us, to remake us, to form us, to transform us into a completely new person. Tear us down and build us back up into your church, into
0: your image, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We begin a new series this morning called As for Me and My House, and we're going to be studying the Ten Commandments together. You say, Gordon, I don't get the As for Me and My House and the Ten Commandments, how the two of these things going together? Well, if you want your house to serve the Lord, there is no more practical teaching than to study the Ten Commandments. If we would look to the Ten Commandments as our household and, and study the Ten Commandments and, and um impose the Ten Commandments and, re- and respond to the Ten Commandments in our household as God asks us to, it would totally transform our homes, our, our, our workplace, everything about our lives if we would take these Ten Commandments in that way. Because oftentimes when we study the Ten Commandments, we look at them as just these ethereal uh, principles, if you would, but rather they're to be applied at a very practical level. And so that's the way we're going to look at them each week as we study these Ten Commandments together. Now, we're going to be looking at commandment number one this morning. And uh, you can flip over in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. In just a moment, we'll read. Um, Exodus chapter 20, we'll read verses 1 through 3. But before you do, while you're flipping over there, I just want to tell you here in a brief uh, introduction that the Ten Commandments uh, really uh, come together in two very neat uh, categories. There are the first four of what scholars call the vertical commandments. These are the commandments that deal with our relationship to God. And then there are what the scholars call the horizontal commandments, the last six commandments that deal with our relationship to God. To one another, but you notice that at the front end of these we're dealing with our relationship to God, so before we begin to relate to one another, God wants to make sure that we've got the vertical relationship correct so um, uh, let's let's stand together and read the first of these commandments, Exodus chapter twenty verses one through three. I was watching a YouTube video this past week of one of my knucklehead family members. Um, You'll have to go, I'm not going to give you the person's name, but the guy was so upset because his church was making some decisions to respect scripture that culturally was a little bit out there, right? And so he was upset and he was ranting and raving about this. And one of the things he said was, I know what the Bible has to say about this, but we also live in a world, you know, where people have differences of opinions and the Bible is one source of truth in the midst of all that. Well, friends, we stand up this morning to remind ourselves that, yes, there are other sources of truth besides the Scriptures. There's reason, there's tradition, there's experience. But when those sources of truth disagree with what's in this text, we go with what's in this text. The Scripture is always primary. And so we stand up. How do we do it again? Here we are, beginning of the new year. Each and every week to remind ourselves that this is the Word of God, this is the truth of God in written form, that this is where truth comes from. And I'm going to keep saying that until it finally logs in our head. And so just that's why we stand today. So let's stand and read together God's truth. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verses verse one through three. All right, here we go. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Well, let's just kind of walk into this here. Verse 2 begins this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have, here's the first commandment, no other gods before me. Now, commandment number one begins by declaring that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I thought it was very interesting as you look at this commandment that God never takes a time out and says, hey, let me prove to you that I am the Almighty. Why does he not do that? Well, it's because he had just proved to them that he is the Almighty. Here they are at the base of Mount Sinai. God has just delivered them out of the land of Egypt. Remember that water that they saw parted that the whole nation, all 4 million or so of them, went passing through. He they had seen all the 10 plagues that God just had just brought. He saw how they saw how God had brought the most powerful army on the planet to its knees before God. So he doesn't need to prove to the Israelites that he is the Almighty. All they have to do is look back at what God had just done. It's proven right before their very eyes. And so here is commandment number one, as the Almighty, he says, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now the Hebrew word that's translated there, before me, um, literally means in place of me. Uh, you shall have no other gods in place of me, or you shall have no other gods except for That's what God's saying here. So, what exactly is number one commandment number one demanding of the Israelites? It's God is demanding here that he be Israel's exclusive God. He is demanding that he be the exclusive object of Israel's love and of their devotion, that they look to him and they look to him alone. He said, No other, no other gods before me. He's demanding that he be the sole focus of Israel's loyalty. And what's really fascinating is that, in the, is that the imperative, the command that God gives here is not a command in the plural form, give me a little bit of grammatical context here, but it, rather it's a command in the singular form. And so the point of that is, is that God is not telling the nation of Israel as a whole not to put any other gods before him. He's telling them as individual Israelites, as individual people in your daily lives, as individuals, he's saying, put no other gods before. Before me. When we leap over to the New Testament, we see Jesus affirming this commandment. Um, One of the teachers of the law in Mark chapter 12 comes to Jesus and says, of all of the commandments in all of the Old Testament, which is the greatest? Well, just so you know, in Jesus' day, the doctors of the law, the teachers of the the Old Testament, um, the, the theologians, had boiled down all of the commandments in the Old Testament to about 600, not about, 613 to be precise, 613 different moral laws. They had identified, think about that, 613 different moral laws, things that you had to keep. But within this 613, they had identified some of them as the big hitters and others as the little hitters. Some of these as the weighty laws and some of them as the more light laws. And so you say, well, Gordon, what are some of the, the big hitter laws that they had identified? Well, things like making sacrifices at the temple, things like laws of, about circumcision, things about laws about the Sabbath. And so all of, these, of all of these big hitter laws, the big big hitter moral laws, this guy comes to him and says, Jesus, out of all those, which is the most important? Look at Jesus' response, Mark chapter 12, verse 29. The first and greatest commandment. The first, you remember, he's, he's giving you literally number one from from, uh, from numbers here. Number one, the first one and the greatest one is this. And then Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And this, Jesus says, is the greatest commandment. In the Bible, Jesus says this is the preeminent obligation that every human being alive has, namely to love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to have no other gods before him, to have no other gods in place of him in your individual lives. And so that's Jesus' statement here. Now, that's as far as we want to go with our treatment of this text. It's just a short little verse, right? And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. Y'all with me? Okay, all right. What difference does all this make to my life? Maybe I'm just out of breath. Need a little need a little break there. Um, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, okay, Gordon, I get it. I see what you're saying. We're supposed to love God with everything. But the question I've got is, what I mean, what does that look like practically? Like, how how does that what does that look like when it flushes out in my life? What difference does it make to me? Well, let me see if I can answer that. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. Now, this declaration that's just made about Jesus, that he's perfect, that he's sinless, that he never did anything wrong in all of his life. And interestingly enough, two of Jesus' followers were his brothers, James and Jude, guys that wrote some of the books in the New Testament. And these two guys, James and Jude, grew up alongside of Jesus. So if anybody could have said, that Jesus had sinned, it had been his younger brothers, right? Because I'll, I'll, let me tell you the time that, you know, or I remember when he said, there's none of that. These two guys were like, yeah, he's sinless, he's perfect. That guy never sinned. <clears throat> and so because of that, because he was perfect, because he was sinless, that also means that the love that Jesus had for the Father, how he lived out his life unto God was perfect as well. Um, how he loved God was perfect. Um, if Jesus' love for God was perfect, then how Jesus lived here on earth in relationship to God gives us the perfect example, the perfect template, the perfect model for you and I to copy. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. There's a fellow in the NBA right now named Stefan Curry. Anybody follow the NBA? This fellow's got a jump shot that is just Money. I mean, it just seems like every time he goes to shoot, he's, he's ripping the nets. And so, Stephon Curry, if he were to make a video of how to, how to you know, perform a jump shot, and we were to copy that video, we were to do exactly what Stephon Curry did, maybe we worked on our, our, our vertical leap or whatever, and we got our jump shot down just like Stephon Curry did, then we would be able to say, you know what, just like Stephon Curry has arguably the perfect jump shot, now I've got the perfect jump shot. So just the same, Jesus Christ lived out his life in a perfect way. And so if Jesus Christ was to make a video, and he did, it's called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the video of his life, right? The snapshot of his life that we have. And we were to model what Jesus did, then we would say, okay, then I know what it is to live out my life unto God in the most perfect way that's possible. You follow me? All right, that's my logic, okay? Everything's kind of hanging on that, so I hope hope you follow me. Okay, so in Jesus' life, what did Jesus' love for God look like? What did his, his fleshing out of, of his Christian walk look like? How did it play out? Well, here you go. John chapter 4 and verse 34. Three verses for you. John four thirty-four. He said, my food is to do the will, key word, to do the will of him who sent me. My food, my spiritual nourishment is to do the will of God, the Father in heaven who sent me. John chapter 8, middle of verse 28. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak just what or only what the Father has taught me. Whatever the Father's told me to say, that's what I say. John chapter 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do my will, but to do the will of Him. He word, will of Him. Who sent me? And then Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. What we see in every one of those statements that Jesus makes is that, and this is how he lived out his his life. He was absolutely surrendered to the will of the Father. That's how he lived out his life. Absolutely surrendered to whatever God wanted him to do, he was surrendered to that. Jesus had placed God on the throne of his life, and he had dethroned himself. This was how Jesus obeyed commandment number one. This is precisely how Jesus lived out loving the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And friends, if you and I want to obey commandment number one, to put no other gods before him, then we have to have the same attitude of absolute surrender of our lives to God. To do what Jesus did, to copy or to model what Jesus did to say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. We have to dethrone ourselves and enthrone God over every part of our lives. That's what commandment number one means. In fact, this is what the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. We'll put that that verse up on the screen for you. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Here's what Paul said, speaking to Christians. He said, brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge you, In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living. Sacrifices. Now, the imagery that Paul is using, he's borrowing from the Jewish tradition of going to the temple and sacrificing an animal on the altar. What a Jewish person would do is they bring an animal in there, a perfect, spotless lamb, and that lamb would be sacrificed. They take the blood of that lamb, they would uh, uh, sprinkle it on the altar, and then they would take the body of the lamb and throw it up on the altar where it would be completely consumed. The, The body of the animal would be burned up completely. Question. How much of the, remember, they're bringing this animal as a sacrifice to God. How much of the animal did God ask for? Answer. Because I knew you didn't, right? But you knew it. I'm going to say it for you. Answer. He knew, he wanted all of it. He wanted the entire animal, the whole thing sacrificed. It's a question. To bring ourselves as living sacrifices before God. What is God asking for us? How much of us does he want? Answer. He wants all of us. Totally.
1: Completely. He's asking for all of our heart.
0: He's asking for all of our mind. He's asking for all of our strength. He's asking us to lay it on the altar before him. The whole shoot and match, the whole kit and caboodle, hook, line, and sinker, the whole enchilada. He wants it all. That's what he wants. God's not asking, friends, for 50% of the stock in your life.
1: He wants 100%. He did want a
0: limited partnership with you. God wants a complete corporate takeover of your life. God doesn't want to be the chairman of your board. God wants to be the one and only board member who's directing your
1: life. God wants complete and
0: total surrender. Now, what does that mean? It means what it meant in Jesus' life, that we go where God tells us to go. That we do what God tells us to do. That we say what God tells us to say. That we act the way God tells us to act. That we live the way God tells us to live. That we forgive the way God tells us to forgive. And we do not negotiate with God ahead of time over the, over the consequences of that decision. We just say, Lord, not my will but yours be done, and the consequences, whatever they may be, you let them come. Absolute surrender, folks, is what keeping commandment number one looked like in Jesus' life, and so just the same absolute surrender is what keeping commandment number one needs to look like in your life and in my life. You say, okay, Gordon, okay, I got a couple questions. I hear what you're saying, but I got a couple of questions. All right, fire away. Question number one, I've I've done this before. I've given over control of my life uh, to people in different areas of my life, different relationships, and what's happened is I got burned. Uh, I mean, what what do you have to say about that? Well, here's what I have to say about that. Is it, friend, if you've had some bad experiences in the past with people taking advantage of your love and taking advantage of your care of them, let us not... Let's be careful to not extrapolate our experiences in those situations with God's desire to be in control of your life. I mean, we're dealing with a totally different being here than the people who had taken advantage of you. I mean, this is the God of the universe who loved you so much that he would send the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, here to the earth to die on a cross. That's how much he loves you. And that totally different being of some total different
1: essence than the people that have burned you or hurt you.
0: He's not interested in abusing you surrendering over control. No, you can count on him and rely on him to do what is right with your surrender to him. You say, well, I got a second question. And it's a really simple question. Why should I? Why should I do this? I mean, Do I have to do this? Do I have to surrender over control in order to get to heaven? Like, is my salvation tied into this somehow? No, it's not at all. You don't have to do this to get to heaven. You don't have to do this at all. But let's appeal back to what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, um, which, by the way, Paul you say, well, Paul, you know, he got beat up, he got whipped, he got shipwrecked, he, he was flogged, he got thrown in prison. I mean, if, if Paul was totally surrendered to God, if he presented himself as a living sacrifice, why would I want to do what Paul did? Well, again, going back to what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, he said, Brothers, in light of God's mercy to you, I urge you to present yourselves as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service which is your reasonable service. Folks, we have to remember that our reason for surrendering our lives completely to God is very clear. It's because the mercy of God has been shown to you and to me. God rescued you from an eternity in hell. God gave his one and only son here to this earth to die on a cross so that you could spend eternity with him. God gave you a new heart and a new spirit inside of you. His Holy Spirit now resides inside of you. God has given you so much, you didn't deserve one iota of it. God has shown his mercy to you. His mercy has been on display through these things. And so, in light of that, Paul says, surrendering our lives to Christ is perfectly reasonable. It is our reasonable service. Friends, we sing our praise songs and we go to Bible study, and we think God's happy with us. Say, God, you know, I was in church on Sunday. I know you're pleased with me. Hey, here I am today, God. I know you're smiling down. There's my child, right? They're so so glad that they're here. Friends, God doesn't want our spiritual presence. What God wants is
1: control of your life. That's what makes him happy, control
0: of your life. God wants to be on the throne of your life and friends, nothing short of that will make him happy. This is what sets a true disciple of Jesus apart from everybody else in the world. A true disciple of Jesus is a person who aspires to love God every day with all of their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. That's what makes God happy. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is a person for whom submission to God is not a buzzword and for whom obedience to God forms the very ebb and flow of every moment of their day. As Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China once said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. In other words, God's either Lord and has control over everything in your life or stop insulting God by telling him
1: that he's your Lord when he really isn't.
0: In closing, as a follower of Christ, there's one more question that I need to ask us. When it comes to your sex life, is Jesus on the throne of your life? When it comes to the kind of magazines that you read and the movies that you watch, See on the throne of your life? When it comes to the places that you go in your mind, who is really sitting on the throne? Is it you or is it Jesus Christ? Because those are the only two options. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. When it comes to how you love your wife, husbands, when it comes to the respect that you show your husband, wives, When it comes to how you treat your children, is Jesus on the throne of your life? Is he Lord of all? You know, God clearly has a will and a way for how those relationships are supposed to be. So whose will
1: is in charge of your life? Is it the Lord's will
0: or is it your will? When it comes to how you serve your co-workers, how do you speak to your fellow man, how you treat other people, how you forgive those who hurt you, how you handle your money, how you keep your word, how you fill out your 1040s. Oh no, he just went to meddling this morning. How How it goes with your full disclosure of your life to others. When it comes to how you do these things in all of these areas, who is in charge, who is on the throne of your life? Is it Jesus who's in charge? Is he Lord of all, or is he just not Lord at all? Now, the good news, friends, I know I've been kind of browbeating here a little bit this morning, but the good news is that we serve a loving and a forgiving God, and if we come to him and say, Lord, I've usurped your rightful place in my life again, and we come to him and say, Lord, I want you back in charge. I want you back in control. God, I I know the things I've been participating in, and some of the things I've done are wrong. And so, Lord, I repent of that. By the way, repentance is a recognition that of what sin is that that it, we've been doing something that's not not in a right keeping with the Lord. And then it's a, a desire to say, Lord, I don't want to do that anymore. That's what repentance is. And so, coming to Him and repentance, coming to Him to place Him back in control of our life, and God will forgive us, friends. That's the good news. But, friends, as followers of Christ, if you've usurped one of these areas, maybe you've never put Christ in charge of your life to start with, then commandment number one demands that you correct that situation. Commandment number one demands that we give over every moment of every part of our life to Jesus Christ. Commandment number one demands that we make our mantra for life, Lord, not. My will, but yours be done. Friends, if you and I want to see the richest blessings of God in our lives and over our homes and our families, this is where it
1: starts. The first and the greatest commandment.
0: Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for reminding us this morning That commandment number one was put first for a reason. That your desire is to be completely and totally in charge of
1: our lives. Lord, that we hold nothing
0: back, no one back, no relationship back from you, no hope, no dream back from you. We surrender it, submit it all to you. And so, Lord, we are reminded now as we gather around this table that you, Jesus, submitted to the Father's will just the same, even to
1: the point of death. You let the Father be in charge.
0: And so, Lord, as we remember your broken body, and your shed blood this morning. In these quiet moments, if there's some areas of our life that we've been holding back and holding on to, may we say to you, whether it be for the first time or again for the 50th time, God, own that part of me, because I want you to be Lord of all. Speak to us, stir in our hearts, we pray. Put your finger right on the issue, Holy Spirit. We submit ourselves to you and to your leading in our lives. In Christ's name.